We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Celebrating a fantastic week eight and breaking down a trade deadline bonanza. That's what we're going to be talking about today on Stealing Bananas, which is brought to you by Blue Wire and WinBet. Ben Gretsch, you can find my Stealing Signals newsletter at bengretsch.substack.com. With me, as always, is Sean Siegel. You can find all of his work over at Rotoviz. Obviously, find him on Rotoviz Overtime right here on the Rotoviz Radio Network. If you haven't listened to that yet, make sure to do that. Sean, week eight, I, I wrote a little bit about in Stealing Signals uh, every, every week in the introductions there. I'm kind of just writing about what I'm thinking, and I wrote in part one this week that I just feel grateful. It's just, I just wanted to enjoy it. We spent a lot of time bummed out about the weeks that don't go well, and if we're going to you know, really wear the, those on the chin and – commiserate when when things are tough or you know when there's injuries and it has been a tough season so far we have to celebrate the victories too and i don't know it was a very fun week eight i think a lot of the listeners will know that i've talked a lot about guys like aj brown and dj Moore and things like that so you know for me personally i know not everybody has the same players on all their teams and the same mixes and maybe not everybody felt the same way but it was just exciting to see points i mean that was the, the big thing I mean, we got offense throughout the at least the early window of games. It's kind of funny in the afternoon and into the primetime games when I was writing part two of Stealing Signals this week. I was like, yeah, the rest of week eight kind of looked a lot like the rest of the season has looked so far. But that early window of games, it was glorious. We got a bunch of overs. We got a bunch of, you know, a lot of points from a lot of different teams. Maybe not everyone had the same mix of players where everything felt great, but it was just fun to see the NFL operating at a certain pace once again. It really was. It really was. I mean, this is one of the greatest weeks of all time, and I think it's all the sweeter because 2022 has been so frustrating in terms of how low scoring it's been. You and I did really a full week, three episodes, looking at different elements of that, why it's happening, what you can do, how you address it, but the main thing is just that it's not as fun. I mean, you sit there on the couch on Sunday, and whether you watch three hours of games or you end up watching you know, 10 or 11 hours worth of football, you want to see points. You want to see big plays. You want to see uh, that scoreboard rolling over. And it did this week. 
even when it's not a guy you you like i mean and i've definitely experienced that a hundred times you're like oh i did not see that coming but that was kind of cool like that was a cool play like it's it's we don't have a lot of exposure to alvin Kamara this year for a variety of reasons but when you watch him like this is peak alvin Kamara. this is what fantasy football is supposed to be like right and so that was really cool it's also fun that you have established such a strong identity and connection to a couple of guys in aj brown and dj moore players who have had their travails and that i mean you have that constant philosophical battle in terms of dealing with their ups and downs through the weeks through the years i mean you've attached yourself to two elite players i think that's always a smart thing to do but at the same time I mean, it can hurt all the more when they are so limited. I think about some of the trades that we've seen with DJ Moore. I mean, he's been sold very low. We saw him go for Christian Kirk in one of our leagues, and the person who traded for Kirk is an elite fantasy player, right? So, I mean, that's not somebody where they don't know what they're doing by any stretch. I think they probably regret that move now, but at the time, you could understand why they would have done that. You and I traded more in a package we got back Chris Godwin. I'm I've just still... glad we did because that's what we needed to unlock DJ Moore was that's... to finally give up on him a little bit in one place. And, and obviously you and I still have plenty of exposure. And, and that could still work out great for us. And Chris Godwin is a player we also like very much and think is maybe mildly undervalued. I mean, people like Chris Godwin. It's not like, you know, we're, we're in a boat by ourselves on that one. And, and who wins that trade, for example, is almost certainly going to depend on which team better addresses their quarterback situation in 2023. Lots of uncertainty on both sides. But A.J. Brown obviously has the situation in Tennessee where they're a run-based offense. He's hurt quite a bit. He doesn't run a ton of routes when he's healthy. He has all of those big plays. You know, one of the best wide receivers both before and after the target. He goes to the situation with the Eagles. And I mean, it's not just that he scores three touchdowns. It's that these three touchdowns are, I mean, these are superhero plays. Right, I mean, it's not that easy to score three touchdowns if you're not good. You don't fluke into a lot of three touchdown games. Then maybe you say on the running back side, maybe some guys did that a little bit this week. Although Deontay Foreman is actually a very, very good player. He projected extremely well coming into the NFL. And then he has probably, I mean, reading between the lines, it seems like he probably had some personal things with coaches and, and whatnot in health that kept him from emerging. I mean, Foreman, a very clear-cut starting talent running back, I think. Anyway. A.J. Brown, these three plays, what it shows for him and what it shows for Jalen Hurts. I mean, this is the game, I think, where you start to see a team that is perhaps comparable to the Bills, comparable to the Chiefs. They look amazing. And then, obviously, D.J. Moore, P.J. Walker. One of the things with P.J. Walker is that if he were someone who'd been drafted in the top 10 picks, I think the Panthers would have to actually be pretty excited about him. I mean, you think about all of the chances the early drafted guys get to succeed and how often they fail for a long time before they succeed. And then how often they just fail and fail and fail and eventually are benched. But I mean, does PJ Walker look worse than Zach Wilson or Trevor Lawrence? I mean, they're at different points in their football careers to an extent as well. But I mean, people have called this a Hail Mary. You and I were talking about it before the show. And, you know, you said people are going to claim that that play is a little bit noisy. And obviously that, play you know you're not going to be able to replicate very often but if you do replicate it i mean this is a skill-based play this was an amazing throw by pj walker a perfectly thrown ball 60 yards down the field 
I mean, perfectly thrown. And it's a situation where DJ Moore runs a nice route, but I mean, he's double teamed. And this is how you, it's not like the Falcons didn't know what the Panthers were going to do. I mean, they had this played correctly and DJ Moore was simply too good, splits the double team. I mean, that ball travels 60 yards in the air. You're running at that speed. You've got two guys around you and you come down with the ball. I mean, what are the odds that that ball is not dropped? DJ Moore is a superstar. This game was so exciting. It's kind of funny because one more little thing before I throw it back to you here. I was watching the end of this game on the shortcuts. The way that those games are kind of cut together, you get some funny commentary that's cut into it. And so that happens. And obviously you've got the controversy afterwards. You get the unfortunate miss on the extra point, which it really wasn't even that bad of a kick. It's just 48 yard kicks are, are somewhat challenging. I don't think there's anybody to blame there. I mean, the second kick missed is the blame probably. It's just one of those really sad things that transpires. But you you get that as it's cut together. I know that you were very upset about what the commentator said. But like, you've got to maintain your composure. And then it somehow segues into, you've got to give Arthur Smith a lot of credit. And I'm thinking to myself watching this game, in what way, shape, or form do you give Arthur Smith any credit for them winning this game? (laughs) I just, it was... Yeah, the, the helmet thing, I, I didn't really articulate my point well. It was an obviously poor decision. I, I guess, you know, I, I wrote I wrote some tweets about it. A lot of people, I think, responded positively to it. And then I got some other, you know, people kind of coming at it and saying I was white knighting for, for DJ Moore and those things. My, I mean, it's really hard to explain nuance on Twitter, but, like, my assumption was that everyone can look at that play and immediately say, yeah, this was not a smart play, including DJ Moore. And I wrote about this in Stealing Signals, but, like, pretty sure DJ Moore, before the extra point was even tried, was like, yeah, that was dumb. Now he's got to kick a 48-yard extra point. Really hope he makes this so I'm not getting criticized for for that. Or not even just so I'm not, so that our team wins, right? Like, I, I They would be in a hilarious four-way tie for first if <laughs> that extra point is made. Oh, man. Uh, I did not realize that. That's hilarious. It, but, yeah, I mean, DJ Moore and everyone who's watching are are, are going to feel that, that that was not a good 15-yard penalty to take in that spot, even before the kick is tried. My point was acknowledging that. The announcers were spending a ton of time on it. The media was spending a ton of time on it. I think they, I saw them talking about it on like the Sunday Night Football recap. I mean, they weren't talking about individual boneheaded plays that were happening during games that cost teams the game. One that I was you know, thinking of in, in contrast was the Trevor Lawrence interception in the London game. Very, very poor decision. It happens during the play of the game. I saw a lot of people telling me it, what Moore did was preventable. I mean, yeah, okay, it's preventable. At the same time, like – players' emotions don't just switch off the second the play ends. And the other context was that Moore had dropped the ball or had a ball go off his fingers. The, the booth thought it was deflected. We didn't get a great replay. Literally on the fourth down of the series before, it looked like the game was over. They went for it on fourth down from their own 18-yard line, down three points. The Falcons, if they convert a first down, run the game out. It's over, more or less, the way that the Falcons were running the ball. Carolina somewhat surprisingly stops them on three straight runs, calls two of their timeouts, they turned it over with about a minute and a half left. They do lose 40 seconds. Atlanta kicks it on the field goal, makes it a six-point game. Carolina gets the ball back with 36 seconds left, and they have to go the length of the field. I mean, again, this is why Moore was upset and, and also wrote about this in Signals. But, Sean, we don't usually see DJ Moore show a lot of emotion, and it seems like he's actually been a little bit more emotional over – the like, especially in this game. I felt like I saw more throughout the game 
he slammed his helmet down after that fourth down that went off his fingers. Again, don't usually see that. It's been a rough season for Carolina. Their head coach is fired. Their running back got traded. Their other wide receiver walked off the field in the middle of a game and got traded. Their quarterback is hurt. Their other quarterback isn't back yet. They're on their their rookie quarterback they drafted got hurt in the preseason. They're literally on their fourth quarterback. I mean, you just talk positively about P.J. Walker, and I completely agree. We've talked about him before. Loved watching him in the XFL. He's super fun to watch, and he plays good football. He was the MVP of that league. I know people laugh at the XFL, but he played really good football there. It's not that surprising for people who watched him in the XFL that he's well, been like able. Kurt Warner went from right being like playing in people's garages. To if you're if you're going to play in a lower level of league, at least dominate it. I mean, if, if you're going to dominate in that, get an opportunity then to to play in a tougher league, right? Like maybe this guy. That's what you would expect a guy who maybe could play at the NFL level to do in the XFL is exactly what he did. Just absolutely dominate and dominate vertically. He had it's a really good arm. He, he they had like a spread offense in Houston in the XFL. He would hit guys downfield a ton. Anyway, setting that aside, no surprise that he had that bomb, that the arm strength for that bomb if you watched him in the XFL. And that was the longest air uh air distance, not air yards, but like travel distance from where he threw it to where it was caught in the next-gen stats era since, like, 2016. I think it was, like, 67-plus yards. So it really was an absolutely bomb throw. This is and an all-time great play. It an was. all-time great play. All-time great play. I mean, I, I said, and this is part of why I responded the way I did about the more helmet thing, is, like, this was the most exciting play of the NFL season. I watch a lot of – I watch all the games at the same time. Obviously, I'm a more fan, but I saw that ball go up, and I'm watching all these games at once, and my eyes are glued to that. When it came down – and he caught it. He got behind the defense, knowing the game situation, knowing what had just happened, just for them to get the ball back to have 30 seconds and no timeouts, down six and needing a touchdown, and behind two defenders. I mean, it was like the the, the Cordell, uh, Cordell Stewart uh, Colorado Buffaloes play from years ago to Michael Westbrook that we always would see on, on highlights or, uh, you know, the Doug Flutie Hail Mary or whatever. I mean, obviously those were a lot bigger in college football, but when I was growing up, those were the highlights you always saw. People that teams back then didn't defend the Hail Mary as much. So they looked a little similarly where it's kind of like a bomb into double coverage, but the receiver's able, able to beat them. Anyway, it was, a, I think, the most exciting play of the year. I let out a, like a noise. I was like, ah, <laughs> like what? The, he caught it. Like what the, what the heck? My point is more emotional season for the Panthers. All of these other, you know, situations with the firings and the tradings. And I mean, he takes his helmet off to celebrate. Like you can, in terms of, bone-headed plays, which, again, I think DJ Moore would have acknowledged probably wasn't the right move in hindsight. You can understand the emotion there from everything that transpired the 10, 15 minutes before and, and him not getting uh, the fourth down the drive before and slamming his helmet and getting one last opportunity. And how many missed opportunities have had all year? And, and again, you talked about the flukiness on this play. One of the important notes for, for fantasy is Moore was open for potentially two other touchdowns. One really clear one where he was running a corner out wide open, could have been a 60-plus yard TD, and Walker sailed it on him earlier in the game. There was another one where he was running kind of a slant between bracket coverage, had some space, would have been a tough throw. Walker missed that one as well. But he had some opportunities earlier in this game to make an impact and did his part of the of the equation, was open against tough coverage. For him to hit on that play in that spot and then to take his helmet off, I mean, I, I don't even think you can get upset at him for taking his helmet off there. It, it's not ideal. But then the other hilarious thing is the kicker misses the kick. And, yeah, it made it a harder kick. But 48 yards in a dome and you get to pick your hash mark, you're an NFL kicker. Like, make that. 
random random note about me, Sean. I've made a 40-yard field goal on three college football fields just because, like, I used to like kicking field goals. Like, it's not that freaking hard. I'm not saying I can make a 48-yarder, but you're an NFL kicker. And I'm definitely – I've never played kicker or anything. I didn't grow up playing soccer. It's not insanely difficult. This guy gets paid to kick field goals. I know it's not easy either, but he also got to well, try in, in, in overtime. Terms of the human element of it, I mean, DJ Moore is crushed. But also, Eddie Pinero is crushed when he misses that second one. Because yeah, because in overtime, he gets one. the same kick. The and, actual extra point, 32 yards from the same right hash that he chose on the 48-yarder. He got the kick he would have got without the more penalty, and he missed that too. This was part of my point on the more thing. There's no guarantee Pinero would have made the, the shorter kick anyway. Yeah, making it 15 yards longer makes it a harder kick, but it doesn't suddenly go from definitely made to very unlikely to be made. It's just a fraction of a change. My thing was like, God, he's going to miss this now, and they're going to blame more. But there's a chance – I mean, he's not a very good kicker. There's a chance he was going to miss anyway. <laughs> and then he ended up missing from the same distance. Well, as you as you pointed out, the really cool thing here, the emotion from DJ Moore. There have been times over the last year and a half where he didn't really look like himself. He didn't look as athletic as he has earlier in his career. Some of the elements of them going to these other guys, which always seem very strange. I think you could put a little bit on him, not necessarily effort, but when you're in this demoralizing situation – where the team is bad and the quarterbacks are bad, the offense is bad, it wears on you. And I think that you have seen that a little bit from him, for him to come back out and do I what he did agree. in this game. I mean, that is so positive for him. It's positive for the team. It's positive for fantasy managers. And then the other kind of little thing that we talked about before the show is that this has not been a great season in a lot of ways for the betting on talent element. I'm not saying it's been a bad season for it, but it hasn't been as blatantly obvious that that's the way that you needed to play it. A projections-based approach, a value-based drafting-based approach has had some real clear wins over the first six to seven weeks. But when you're, especially when you're looking at dynasty, but even if you're looking at how a redraft season is going to evolve over the full length of it, and so one of the problems is that if you are waiting on some of these talent-based plays to manifest and you also get key injuries, then your team gets very buried in a way that's frustrating. But we're now seeing so many of the big-time talents push through even bad situations. One of the fun things to watch has been the developments of these running backs. Travis Etienne, a guy that we liked well ahead of Najee Harris during prospect season, you get the unfortunate situation where he misses his rookie year. Harris scores all of the fantasy points based on volume. But we're very clearly seeing the difference in talent between these two guys. Where I mean, Najee Harris might be out of the league in not that long a period of time. You wouldn't, even as poorly as Trent Richardson played, you wouldn't have expected his career to completely disappear so fast. Meanwhile, ETN is in a Jaguars offense that, I mean, it's an absolute train wreck at this point. And he looks like a purely transcendent football player. I mean, maybe not quite to the level of a Brees Hall yet. And that's the other thing that is just so devastating about you know, some of the specific things that have happened this season. But Travis Etienne, an absolute superstar. He is so fun to watch. Every play feels like it's going to be a touchdown. Yeah, he looks incredible. And to the bet on talent point, 
I mean, last year, the Jaguars looked like a team that couldn't support any skilled players, no matter how good they were. We don't know how ETN might have looked in that offense, but they looked so, so bad. They were coached so poorly. You think about this from a multi-year perspective, from concepts like Dynasty, or even just how are we going to approach 2023 redraft, and think about how some of these offenses this year have been so damaging to the individual players in them. ETN, I think, is a good example. Like you, You're mentioning the Jaguars as an offense that is looking really poor, and they have looked really poor this season, and yet they haven't looked as bad as last year. It didn't take a lot of improvement is the point that I'm trying to make for them to suddenly be good enough for Travis ETN to hit. You mentioned Hall. The Jets have not looked great. Hall was hitting in a Zach Wilson-led offense that since Hall has gone down doesn't look very good. There are a lot of examples of that where – DJ Moore is the other one, right? Um, where we we just see PJ Walker being enough, right? I mean, we, we talked for, for weeks about how Baker Mayfield and Matt Rule and this combination was so bad for the Panthers. And I don't think anyone was disagreeing with that, but it doesn't take a lot. It doesn't take a superstar elite quarterback if the player can elevate his surroundings. If DJ Moore is good enough to make things work with PJ Walker with a little bit of a different offensive approach than whatever Matt Rule was sort of you know, headlining Kyle Pitts this week hits. I mean, there, there's a, I talked about this week being one that I want to be grateful for. There are so many guys that we've talked a lot about. Pitts is the guy that I probably have wound up writing the most words about in stealing signals this year because it's been so hard to understand the Falcons. They end up throwing 28 passes in this game. A lot of that is because of the late game stuff with the Panthers and the overtime period where they got five extra passes on, on two extra drives. You wouldn't necessarily expect them to be at 28. It's interesting that Pitts' final reception came, I believe, on their 17th or their 18th pass. They were still very low volume through maybe the middle of the fourth quarter, is, or maybe it's the early fourth quarter. It was definitely the fourth when he caught uh, what was a 33-yard catch, and you saw the, the, you know, the yards after the catchability and the athleticism, and this guy who was you know, built in a lab to be a, to, to be a football-receiving monster. He looks like Calvin Johnson. He has his catch and run, 33 yards, finally get him into space a little bit. We've been talking about how this could happen even in a low-volume offense, and the point I'm trying to drive home is he had 80 yards at that point and a touchdown when they had fewer than 20 passes. I mean, it, it wasn't even impossible for him to succeed in the situations we've been seeing up to this point. That's why it's been so frustrating, and he kind of did in this game, even in that low-volume situation, even though they wound up with 28 passes. I know that's a really like unnecessary point that I'm making, but... It wasn't just the elevation of pass volume and overtime that got Pitts there. It was him being a focal point early and him actually producing in the concept of this offense because he's that good. And it's something that we've been waiting for. And it was exciting. It wasn't a massive hit. It doesn't justify his ADP. and No one's saying any of that stuff. It does argue and continue to argue when you look at things like his targets per out run and his air yards profile and, now some efficiency here in this game that backed that up a little bit, which couples with the efficiency last year and his college profile. This guy is going to be an elite tight end at the NFL level. The second he's in any type of offense that can support production, this one might not be it for the whole 2022 season. He might be too high profile to really fall in drafts. It'll be interesting to see where he goes next year. I'm telling you right now, I'm probably going to be drafting a lot of Kyle Pitts just on this idea that of what we've seen, the betting on talent and a lot of the, the, these gaps in the good and the bad offenses creating these opportunities where the really good hits, these really good talents are being covered up a little bit more than they should be. 
And we should be more willing, I think, to be really confident that Kyle Pitts is going to be a good player long-term. Garrett Wilson is another one we talked about before the show. Is is a star. He's a star, right? But, like, ever since Zach Wilson took over this offense, that's what's limited Garrett Wilson, not Garrett Wilson. Garrett Wilson has been extraordinary. I think that he has a lot of Justin Jefferson to his game. Not quite as big, obviously. But in terms of that ability to more or less be open every single play, the combination of routes, explosiveness, he looks like an absolute superstar. I wrote in one of my articles early this week that the Falcons have actually changed their approach to the way they're using Pitts since he's come back from that hamstring injury. And their peripherals that were good before have gotten even better in some key ways. You can check that out at Rotoviz if you would like. But the point here that I think is interesting, and one of the reasons why Pitts actually never became that inexpensive in Dynasty beyond the fact that just he's so young is that you don't want to be out on these guys like an AJ Brown when they come through, because for the most part, they're going to do AJ Brown and Kyle Pitts types of things, even in the bad stretches. Now we talk a lot about win big, lose small types of drafting. The thing that has been so obvious about Pitts through the first seven weeks is that, I mean, you're never a hundred percent right about things trying to emphasize through the offseason that I'm going to be wrong about things all the time. You hope not to be wrong in such a big way, like with the Kyle Pitts. And it's a reminder that even with the win big, lose small drafting, you can occasionally do something that becomes a massive loss, which is what Pitts has been. But we look at it over a longer timeline, perhaps over the second half of 2022, you're certainly hoping when you miss to have drafted a good team otherwise that will get there and then you have a unique player but over multiple seasons and as you're playing dynasty, these are the things you want to do. There have been a lot of teams in dynasty that look very good on paper that haven't had great results. I think they're going to look better over the second half. That was one of the things that was so fun about week eight. Now it's not as much the case. We have Brees Hall and Jamar chase on your roster. The team I drafted with Patrick Crane and the Rovis triflex format has been really enjoying. Well, this most recent week with, Christian McCaffrey, the things that you and I talked about on our McCaffrey trade show, very much coming to fruition in the short term. But that team has lost Jamar Chase and Brees Hall. So you got to decide then, you know, do we try and take advantage of this McCaffrey season? Do we demonstrate patience? And you have to thread the needle to an extent, because if you don't demonstrate patience, I mean, you're going to be looking at a five year window down the line where Brees Hall and Jamar Chase are averaging somewhere between 22 and 28 points per game and thinking, what have I done? Because, again, one of the themes that we've talked about, the most you can increase your chances to win this season still make it something where luck is going to play in heavily in the semis, the finals, that kind of thing. But if you have Brees Hall, if you have Jamar Chase for that window as they go forward – you're going to have one of these teams that often is the number one seed that often gets a buy. You want to have the patience for that. And even though anyone can win any week, I mean, you'd much rather be 75 or 80% likely to win than, than 60% likely, which a lot of playoff fantasy matchups probably are between 60, 40, you know, towards the 50, 50 side, because it's two good teams. Sometimes you can build these teams that you feel pretty confident might be you know, three to one favorites might be 75% to win. You can still lose. <laughs> <laughs> right, like and, definitely still those is. those are some of the toughest toughest losses to take by far, but um, that's the goal for sure. 
We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. And again, just kind of wrapping up, we promised some trade deadline talk, but celebrating the wins, you and I were kind of exchanging messages How about you Sunday. Colin Myers scoring again, Sean? Oh, man, he looks amazing. <laughs> he looks so good. Rondell Moore, there's so many players we didn't talk about. Romeo Dobbs started doing some stuff. It was such a fun Sunday. Yeah, we could talk a length about that. He has a big bounce back week after Aaron Rodgers. He loves to, to threaten people in the media. And then when players respond, that part has to be yeah. big. And I, I mean, think he dodged he, a huge bullet because I was watching his, his usage. He started the game in a three wide receiver set, then immediately came off and it was Christian Watson and Sammy Watkins for the next two plays and two wide receiver sets. And then uh, Watson had the concussion after just six snaps. And so they were down to four healthy receivers at that point. They only had five active for the game with Lazard injured and in their other situations. They ended up playing Samari Toure a decent amount. But I mean, Amari Rogers was the other guy, but they had to go Dobbs a lot heavier, I think, than they were intending to. It looked just in those first couple of snaps like this was going to be the game where Dobbs' route share came down. And, and, and it's was, it's so important to take advantage of those opportunities in football and life, all of those different chances when you get him to make those plays. I mean, he looked like the guy he looked like in the summer, in the preseason, even in a few of those early games. An absolute highlight real catch. I mean, he's going to have to be the guy for them. Sammy Watkins, again, hilariously unproductive in this game. But you and I exchanging some messages. We did get that number one pick once this season. We used it on Christian McCaffrey. There were some times 
when it was a little bit frustrating. Now there's that potential for him to average around 30 points a game the rest of the way. That's I mean, our he, favorite. You said to me he didn't do anything that impressive in this game. It wasn't like he had a bunch of highlight runs. The catch pretty extraordinary. I get. I I, I don't know what's going to happen going forward, but I'll go to my grave thinking that this this. 49ers pulled off a massive heist. I know there was a lot of talk about how much they gave up to get him. I think that was a magnificent trade. I think teams still don't understand the importance of a receiving back and what that does for your offense. And I think it's even more important with what defenses are doing to teams now to see that play. I mean, that reception, not quite as good as the, the dubs catch, but it was very impressive. An extended play where Garoppolo's a little bit you know, shaky in the pocket at that point, steps up, looks out to his outlet. McCaffrey's there in the flat, and he immediately looks at him. I watched the playback a couple of times. I had someone mention maybe he was throwing to Kittle because Kittle winds up in the same area. No, Garoppolo, when he stepped up in the pocket, looked to McCaffrey in the flat. McCaffrey instinctually senses the defender kind of closing down on him and takes off and just goes right behind him, right? Easily, you know, burns him, if you will. I don't know if you really call it that. Defender's moving in. He just... Pops right in behind him. They're at about the 10-yard line or whatever. And Garoppolo, again, late in the down, needs to get the ball out, just stares McCaffrey up the sideline, throws it to him over the top of that defender that was closing down on the flat. There's not a lot of running backs that have the instincts. I mean, it's a fraction of a second play to say, I'm not going to – I see my quarterback seeing me in the flat, but this is not the play. The play is now down the field. I'm going to break behind this defender I feel coming down. He makes the play that – that second quicker than another running back might. And Garoppolo hasn't released the ball yet or anything. He's just looking at him and can just easily throw it over the defender. McCaffrey then also skies up and makes the catch. Completely created by Christian McCaffrey's feel as a receiver, even though he's a running back. You talked about how he impacts the passing game. We talked a lot about it last week as well, but Garoppolo goes 21 to 25 in this game. He's been a little bit inefficient at times. Doesn't throw an interception, only takes three sacks. Targets McCaffrey on nine of those 25 passes for eight receptions. And when you have that outlet, every down that is getting long and looks like a potential sack or a bad Garoppolo interception turns into, oh, I got McCaffrey. I can throw to him. I can complete eight and nine passes. They're not going to be huge gains a lot of the time. He wasn't super efficient in the receiving game. How how much easier does that make it on you as a quarterback? It's incredible. And they don't even have Debo Samuel in this game, the NFC championship game is going to be Eagles 49ers. These two teams, absolutely fantastic. The 49ers offense. And so excited. they don't even really need to use George Kittle in this game, but when they do, he comes through with an important touchdown to put the final nail in. And, and sorry to cut you off again, but you mentioned that team. I kind of directed us away from that, but we've talked about it a lot on the show. We started McCaffrey, Tyreek Hill, AJ Brown at the two, three turn. And then we got Jalen hurts to, to pair with AJ Brown. So it's funny. It was a good week for that team. I'm sure people could add up with those four players. But the rest of our guys weren't even that great and didn't really need to be. We put up 200 points. We had, you know, Mostert in there, 7.7 points. We were playing Taysom Hill at tight end. He had 8.8. Our kicker and D combined for five. But we had a 200-point week out of that core. And almost always when you put up a 200-point week, you check in and find that you just magically fluked into like 30 points from your kicker and defense. To, to do it with a five spot from, you know, kicker and D combined. We have uh, Jake Elliott. He just kicks the five field goals and we played the Raiders defense. They scored zero. And, and I mean, we have Dobbs on the bench on that team. Um, some injured guys, Bateman and Burks, but, and Drake London on the bench. Our other starting receivers are Garrett Wilson and Jerry Judy, who I know you were excited about Judy, seeing him get going. 
this is a team that looks like it could like really compete now. I, I'm super, super excited about this roster. It's so fun to have a lineup that gives you a chance. And not everybody has the opportunity to draft as many teams as we do. And so we know that that's a, a unique path in some ways, but it has been a lot of fun. And again, when you consider the Lance chase, the I mean, the Brees Hall thing still, I'm having a hard time kind of coming to terms with. But to, to have a shot here with a fun team in 2022, you just have to really be thankful every time that something goes well. There's no guarantee that, that those things will happen. And it just it makes what you're doing a lot of fun. So we are grateful for week eight, one of the all-time best weeks in fantasy football. Ben, there was a trade deadline and a lot of big or meaningful names switched squads. I was talking with Zachary Kruger. We actually freed up a bunch of players in Jeff Wilson, Naheem Hines, TJ Hawkinson. Hawkinson, someone who you look again at his peripherals and they're not at the elite level, but they're sort of toward the top of that next group. He consistently does that. He looks to me as you eyeball it. And this is coming from someone who does draft him on a lot of teams. So you are looking at it through rose colored glasses, coming at it as a Lions fan. And so you get that second pair of glasses on top and suddenly you know now you are not looking at it in an unbiased way at all but someone who just a a actual star who's been covered up a little bit by the lions i think it's kind of sad for the lions they've made this move they don't get a ton back it is going to help them a little bit in the draft it helps you because you now have all that money to spend there are a lot of ways in which moving some of these guys even stars ahead of the big second contract will get you both that pick depth and you can just go out and buy somebody else from a different team. Plus you get the picks as opposed to having to pay for your own player. I mean, the NFL gives you some leverage, but not so much that you still don't end up having to pay a ton for these guys. And yet, even with that being the case, I think this is a bad move for the Detroit lions. One of the things I think is a little bit frustrating is you see so many teams that are now going to a situation where they have, niche tight ends blocking tight ends you have a lot of heavy formations and then you're trying to have some misdirection out of that where they're passing to the blocking tight ends i think that that's sort of a losing game in the long run if you have someone with a hawkinson skill set and upside i think it's important to not give that away it's especially surprising i think and it's definitely a full sign of short-term capitulation if even that comes into play when you trade him within your own division, I mean, they're going to be looking at TJ Hawkinson now for a long time and the Vikings, you know, not to the same level as what we're seeing. I don't think with the Miami dolphins, but this new young coaching staff has been impressive. They are one of those teams where if it's not the the teams that I mentioned, Vikings, Cowboys, the other squads right now that look like they'll be in the mix to be the NFC Super Bowl contender. You have the talk about Irv Smith going out. For Hawkinson, I mentioned those peripherals. This season, it's really almost exclusively based on that massive game in week four. He's been disappointing in the other contests. But I would not be surprised, and again, I'm a TJ Hawkinson true believer, I would not be surprised if, I mean, there's going to be a little bit of a adjustment time period. But if you have a lot of him in fantasy, there are a lot of worse places to go. You've got to be pretty excited about him in Minnesota, don't you? I think that's a... A strong take. I uh, 
I've been pretty indifferent about it. I guess I haven't been, I mean, I'm not as much of a, a Hawkinson true believer and don't really love the Minnesota sort of offense and passing game beyond Justin Jefferson. And I guess I think that, you know, Phelan and Hawkinson and Osborne and whoever else are all kind of kind of be whatever behind that. Obviously for a tight end, the, the bar is lower. Um, but I didn't, you know, I, I, I'm glad to hear you say that, I guess, for the listeners, because I didn't really have a strong take on, on what it means for Hawkinson. So at least, at least one of us gave one, uh, in terms of the actual trade compensation, they had already picked up just for anyone who's not aware, they'd already picked up his fifth year, uh, option. He's due over 9 million next year. So you get the cheap contract for the rest of this year. You do have a substantial raise next year. And then he's a free agent after 2023. At the same time, I'm right there with you. I mean that that played into the, the to the compensation. You were talking about it uh, stockpiling the picks. I mean they did two pick swaps. They gave up picks to get picks back. They do get significant increase. I believe a you know a second rounder was the highest one, but they give up a fourth. That's a that's a gap, but it wasn't a massive gap. I think everything you said does apply to the Claypool trade, for example, where the Steelers were able to move off of a guy who's going to be due a significant raise pretty quick and get a second round pick in return. The Bears acquire a guy who is cost controlled for the rest of this year, which doesn't really matter for the Bears other than, you know, trying to evaluate Justin Fields, I guess. And then next year, and then after that, you know, he's, he's due for a raise. But but Claypool, I, I mean, you think about what that second round pick could be. There are misses in the second round, but second round picks are pretty valuable in terms of uh, there's some studies few years back that showed the early second round picks being the most valuable picks to have. Maybe that has changed with the fifth year option stuff, but because of the salary scale and then the, the odds to hit as well, do you still get a good player in that range in the early second round, but you also get them a lot more cost controlled than a high first round pick who are still cost controlled very much. The rookie, the rookie wage scale is beneficial for salary cap purposes, but you have to pay quite a bit more in, in the first rounds. Um, so anyway, it, it, it interesting around around the league where there were some you know instances like you said. I, I thought the Steelers trade was a really good one. They can get probably a Claypool level talent now with a new rookie contract that starts in twenty twenty three. I mean, not guaranteed to get a Claypool level talent, but there's also that chance of getting somebody even better. Just a few years ago, we had AJ Brown, Debo Samuel, and DK Metcalf in the same second round of the same NFL draft. So you can get a superstar level wide receiver. Well, I mean. Even if we think about guys who still have a very wide range of outcomes, you have Rondell Moore, Elijah Moore, two young, extremely athletic, just extremely athletic players who have both had some spurts. We could see almost anything from them, but I mean, the Steelers, I mean, it's got to come down to your drafting, right? If you pick players who have that mix of what your scouts like and the analytics are so relatively straightforward. I mean, there are still plenty of nuances, but on how you want to maximize your chances to hit here, I mean, you should be able to get someone better than Claypool. And, and you're talking and maybe about better than from the full range of outcomes that he still has and from the full range of outcomes that that new young player is going to have. And when you talk about cost adjusted as well, and you think about how that new player's contract is going to extend a lot longer than Claypool's, and then also... I was going to say maybe with a later pick, because probably with the Steelers, you know, part of this is trading from a position of strength. They just re-signed Deontay Johnson. Obviously, Pickens looks like a hit, and they have Friar move. So 
you don't really need all four of these receiving weapons necessarily. I mean, you'd like to have depth of that spot. We've talked about that. But they're probably, I think, looking at a third or fourth round type receiver in the future using that second round pick probably to restock in other areas of their roster, trying to you know get a little bit of a later surprise hit. But they've been really good at drafting and developing receivers. On the Bears side, I mean, don't you want a new contract, rookie contract starting in 2023 instead of being in the last year of the 2023 contract? I mean, you could directly use that second round pick on a wide receiver. And I think it's a smarter move to, to save that pick than to trade for Claypool. Yeah. And one of the things I was kind of joking with a family member about this weekend is that when you make some of these choices that are arguably suboptimal and, and a lot of it is, is going to be hindsight, but even things that people were talking about at the time, when you think about the Kansas city chiefs and their decision to trade out of a pick where they could have selected George Pickens. And yeah, I mean, he looked like a potential superstar, but you have injury concerns and you have potential character concerns and you have some other guys you like. So you move down, you don't get him. Now you have somebody who maybe is, I mean, we hate to say this, and it's too early to be sure by any stretch. It's difficult for young players, especially in offenses that you know have plenty of nuances to them. But he's already kind of going into that McCall Hardman, Clyde Edwards, Alaire category where those guys aren't complete busts, but the things that they have done well do seem to be almost completely the product of the Chiefs' offense and not their talent. So you have Sky Moore, and then what do you do to make up for the decision that you made that probably wasn't right? Well, you go and trade for someone who has injury concerns and character concerns, which are the two things that maybe led you to avoid George Pickens in the first place. So you end up chasing and then ending up spending more to get the same kind of thing. Well, the Chicago Bears, one of the things that was so mystifying this offseason is that they didn't address cube, they didn't address the receivers to help Justin Fields and his development. They get to this point in the season and I mean, again, I'm not exactly unbiased, but Justin Fields looked spectacular against this Dallas Cowboys defense. Yeah, they end up getting blown out. He can't, I mean, he's not on the field to defend those Tony Pollard runs, which are some of the best runs you'll ever see. It wasn't his, I mean, he does kind of factor into the fumble, but if they don't have that fumble that's returned for a touchdown, I mean, this game could have actually been won by the Chicago Bears. Fields looks like he's going to be one of the next stars, but a lot of that is still covered up by the fact that they have receivers who I mean all of their receivers outside of Darnell Mooney should not be in the NFL and so then you get to this point and you're like man our guy is getting there our team is actually pretty solid we don't want to go the second half of this year without giving him something and so that's sort of the contrast between what they've done and what the Jaguars have done by adding Calvin Ridley and by the end of the season Trevor Lawrence may be in real trouble maybe going the David Carr route where even if there is some pretty serious talent there it's going to be so hard to come back from. So the Bears have made a mistake by not addressing that position and then getting in a position here where they make what is almost certainly a bad trade. Big picture. But from the perspective of what they needed to do, I like this. I think this is kind of a win-win because Claypool is the perfect fit for what the Bears need. He's a guy who has that freak score element to him where he's big, he's athletic. Justin Fields, one of the things he does very well, one of the things you saw in this game and guys like Equinemia St. Brown, Dante Pettis, those players can't come down with it, but he throws a ton of beautiful jump balls to where if you had a playmaking receiver, maybe you add on, you know, 100, 150 yards, multiple touchdowns on those plays. 
I mean, just so many beautifully thrown balls like that that I think Claypool would excel on. And I mean, he's he's struggled since that really hot start to his career. But from a contingency-based perspective, or just thinking through the out- possible outcomes for them, there's a slight chance that it's such a good fit with Fields that they feel very good about this trade, even though when that pick is on the clock, I mean, they're going to wish they had it. I think that's all really well put. I, As far as fantasy is concerned, I, I don't think you can really make a strong case that Claypool's been significantly better than Mooney. Obviously, the Bears' way that they play has not been great for Mooney. They could throw a little bit more, but now you have both Mooney and Claypool. I think you have to view this, even though Claypool's role in Pittsburgh wasn't strong, as a negative for Claypool because you're going from a team that in Kenny Pickett's three full games has averaged more than 50 dropbacks per game. You're going from that team to a team that is maybe the, you know, the the most run heavy team in the league by by some metrics certainly they again might might pass more now but i saw some people excited that this unlocks claypool makes him the number one receiver you're talking about a very big shift in terms of the situation i wasn't very excited about claypool for fantasy i mentioned not being very excited about hawkinson sean the two that i was most excited about that i thought were sort of the winners of the guys that moved were jeff wilson and naheem hines also not very excited about chase edmonds i don't really i mean he hasn't played well and I saw some people excited that this might recoup his value, but like he hasn't been good and Denver has other options. They all mix him in, but I just don't know where that goes for him super positively. Wilson heads to Miami. We've talked about how part of Mostert's big role has been Edmonds playing poorly. Wilson has played well for the 49ers, knows the system very similar to Mostert coming over from San Fran with Mike McDaniel coming over from San Fran, knows the system, plays good football, I think he could work into a 50-50 split there somewhat, you know, which is not great for us because we have a lot of Raheem Mostert, but somewhat quickly because he is pretty good and they probably don't want to overwork Mostert to the extent that they can. And if Mostert has any type of injury issues, which he's obviously had, Jeff Wilson now suddenly could be the lead back in a really good offense. I think he's a pretty big winner. Hines shifting over to the Bills, the way teams have played them. A lot of underneath passing. I think it's very clear that they're going to have him run a lot of routes for them, right? Maybe even split out some and take some of that stuff. But they've had a lot more, not necessarily just that Allen is low A dot guy, because he's still get pushing it vertically at times, right? But they've had a lot more underneath volume overall. They had the game against the Dolphins where they threw like 60 passes. I think Singletary caught eight or nine balls and Cook caught another like three or five or something. Um you know, you have the ability in an offense that throws enough to have 10 plus running back receptions in a game. That's probably pretty good for Hines. That's not what I thought this offense would be. I talked about it in the offseason, not being super excited about the running back receiving here. I think the way that they've been played defensively actually sets the Bills up and the way that they've attacked it. Allen clearly understanding that defenses want to take away the deep passing and he needs to be able to throw the ball underneath. They've been so much better at that. And Allen has been so much better at that than he was maybe in his first couple of years. He's gradually gotten better, but this year has been great at it, at taking what's there underneath and getting positive plays. Hines, I think, is a really nice fit there. It's probably not good for Singletary. It's devastating for James Cook, I'm sure, who looked somewhat exciting over the last couple of weeks. But I thought Hines and Wilson were the two biggest winners in terms of the movers. What what are your thoughts on those running backs? Been the win bet trade smash that we have for the 2022 deadline. Those two running backs that you just mentioned, Jeff Wilson, Naheem Hines, getting ready to really increase their values for fantasy managers over the second half of the season. Sign up today 
to receive a special sports offer. Bet 100, win 100, download the win bet app now or visit wynnbet.com to start winning. Wilson, the first thing I thought when you look at this is that this could be sort of the Sony Michelle from 2021, where if you have him on your best ball rosters, especially, and you get to the playoffs, then you're looking at someone who could be a top five scorer weeks 15 through 17 if things break the right way. I mean, we have a lot of exposure to Mostert, have a little bit of exposure to Wilson. So it's not necessarily what we're rooting for. But again, Wilson, a good player. It's the perfect fit. This Dolphins offense, even with Mostert looking okay, in part because Edmonds has played so poorly, they haven't gotten as much from the running game as I'm sure they would like. As they continue to develop, you're going to want some of those splash plays. You're going to want some of that ability to grind the clock out. Mostert brings a perfect fit for the offense. He is spectacularly fast. And I think that we are going to see a couple of 40 plus yard touchdown runs from him before the season is over. But even right now, he's not quite 100%. He goes down very easily when contacted. And part of that is just his profile, but you also get the impression that he just doesn't want to be in a bunch of these piles where his knees are going to get rolled up or they're going to be issues with I mean, some of the backs just aesthetically are different. I mean, there is a, a functional element to fighting through some of the tackles as well. I mean, Mohoster is never going to be one of those guys who impresses you as a tackle breaker, but he seems in some ways even a little bit more willing to go down this year. Wilson is going to give them a, a little bit more of that fight, I think, at the point of contact that coaches really like to see. Yeah, I mean, 50-50, I think it's, I mean, hopefully it's 70-30 <laughs> until Mostert actually does get hurt, and that's 100% for Wilson. It's it's such a perfect fit, and, and the Miami Dolphins, I mean, this is now, I, I found myself over the past couple of weeks, and especially when they go out and make some of these big trade acquisitions, and the Dolphins are putting themselves in the mix to be the coolest team in football, right? And you would never have thought that, you know, 12 months ago, that this is going to be the most fun team, the most aggressive team. I mean, this is a team that is approaching it the same way that we saw the Rams approach their Super Bowl run and victory. And yet it kind of depends on what you like. I mean, Cooper Cup has been the greatest of the great, but when you put Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle together, and then you add some stars on defense, you add better running back depth. This looks like a team that could compete with the Buffalo Bills and the Kansas City Chiefs. I mean, this is such a cool team. You love to see teams go after it. I mean, there are going to be some consequences for them through the years. But if you have the right decision makers behind the scenes, you can also make this type of roster building work. And one of the pluses of it is it works in the short term. And then if you're savvy enough, it doesn't actually hurt you in the long term as much as people think. I, I'm just so excited for the Dolphins. Blair Andrews has a fantastic article on the site. He writes the one big thing every week. This week, he talks about Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle together. They're both in the top five right now in wide receiver scoring. He looks at historically what that has meant for the finish. There are some cool notes in there that you might be surprised to find. I encourage everybody to check that out. But then, yeah, I mean, the Dolphins so cool. And then Hines... <sighs> I'm a big Singletary guy. It's frustrating to me when you look at what happened down the stretch last year and then how he's been used, especially in terms of getting him any sort of rushing touchdowns this season. But 
I'm also aware of what the bills are and what the bills want to do. And so I'm only trying to get good prices on Singletary. I think that he's going to leave them, get into a better situation. He's someone I would still be trying to acquire, but everything about this has been telegraphed to us. It's, it's no surprise. I mean, so it actually happens. That's bad. But we know that the Bills have been wanting to go away from him in the receiving game. They try to get J.D. McKissick. They draft James Cook. Cook is an interesting one. I'm really buying Cook now because I just try to buy so heavily into volume, which I'm always selling, not that interested in, especially at the running back position where things can change so quickly and so dramatically. But we're definitely now in a position where the weak prospect profiles from Zamir White and James Cook, that there has been, I think, a very legitimate argument that they're kind of covering each other up in college, that it was an overall situation where they were not going to be able to generate some of the things from a prospect profile perspective that people want because of the exact environment. Some of the questions about who they were as prospects now, I think, are kind of moving back in the direction of where they probably always should have been. But but again, I'm buying Cook. I mean, this is devastating for him, and yet it is a buying opportunity. You're talking about Dynasty specifically. Specifically, but I mean, Cook should be a a free ad now in redraft. You just don't know. I mean, Hines is one play away from being out. I mean, Cook is going to be fired up. He's the guy they kept on the team. I mean, part of this is just like, if you can get rid of Zach Moss and get a better player, I mean, why would you not do this? This trade makes absolutely no sense for the Indianapolis Colts, who again, I mean, fire everybody and start over. This You're just continuing to destroy your team, right? Yeah, it'll be cool to see. I think because Jonathan Taylor is so good and because pass catching backs have to be unreal until anybody is willing to give them credit, Hines is not going to be Austin Eckler. He's not going to be Tony Pollard, but he is a very good player and an elite athlete. This is a, a no brainer for the Bills. Why would you not want a great receiving back who is a plus athlete and fits everything that you want to do? Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you there. I mean, it was easy, easy trade for the for the Bills. What did they give up a sixth with Moss? I mean, just nothing. And the Dolphins too. I just looked that up because you were commenting on the trade compensation. I think they gave up a fifth, um, or they did. I just looked that one up, and I think that was a no brainer for them too. I mean, they didn't like what they had with Chase Edmonds. People between the Bradley Chubb and Edmonds trade with Denver. And the Wilson trade, there was a lot of speculation on Twitter. Maybe Kareem Hunt was coming to Miami. And then there was commentary after that the Browns wanted a fourth for Hunt, which is a little bit surprising someone didn't pay up for that because Hunt's a decent enough back. Day three pick. But I think I would take Jeff Wilson for a five. I mean, knows your system. You know, you're you're the coach that's familiar with him from your time in San Francisco. Maybe you'd rather have Hunt for a four. I don't know. There's definitely some people who still believe that, that Hunt is an incredibly good back. I, I, I think he's always been good. He's definitely also getting up there. And, you know, we, we had a lot of conversation for a lot of years that he was no longer with the Browns. He might be a lead back again. I mean, he's, he's over 27 years old now. At a certain point, you're winding down your career now. He hasn't had a ton of hits over the last several years or what have you. So, anyway. Well, and, and Hunt doesn't have a whole lot of say over this, but one of the reasons why he was pushing for the trade is that he wants a new contract. If you feel like you're going to have a headache with it, if you're not willing to give him the money that he wants, then, I mean, that part of it is a disincentive to make the move for him too. 
yeah, easier easier for the Dolphins to just grab Wilson. Less expectation there. It's a good point. But yeah, those I thought those were both really good trades by the teams for the, the real world. I agree with all your thoughts on Miami. They're, they're just they're fun. They're exciting. I, I've seen some stuff that suggested that they're still not as close to competing as some of these trades might have um, expected and didn't really improve their odds that much. Look, the AFC is set up to be really good for the next several years. We've talked about this. I mean, you talk, obviously, the Chiefs and the Bills are two, uh, either the best two. You, you always like to say the best two. I think we got to give the Eagles some credit, too. But they're at least two of the best three. That's that's a tier teams in the NFL. You have the Bengals with Joe Burrow, right? But that team doesn't really look like it's their year right now, right? You have the Ravens with Lamar Jackson. You have the Chargers with Herbert, but another one that doesn't really look like it's their year. We thought the Broncos would be a lot better. De- definitely not their year. There's actually a little bit of opportunity here. I was kind of looking through the AFC the other day because we thought it would be so good, you know, really deep down to the seven seed in the playoffs. There's room for Miami, whatever seed they are, to go into the postseason. And the Titans don't look that great. The whole AFC South looks bad. The Colts have not been good, obviously. Who are the best teams in the AFC other than 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 the the Chiefs and the Bills? I mean, I, I do think the Ravens, I think you know the Bengals, the Chargers have that upside, and and there are other good teams. But the Dolphins can be right there in that mix for the third or fourth best team in the AFC. They're not going to win the number one seed. They definitely look like a playoff team. Remember, this is a team that had a three game losing streak, and all three of those games they lost their starting quarterback that they game planned for that week in the first half. I mean, this team could be seven and one team right now. They're five and three. I mean, they, they could be in a, a much better situation if some of these things would have broke a little bit differently for them in terms of the injuries and the quarterback issues. Yeah, I mean, I think go for it, right? Like, when are you going to have another opportunity in an AFC that looks like it's going to be really strong for the next five years? And you're trying to build a winner. You're trying to build a good team. This looks like as good of an opportunity as any to me. It's still going to be really tough to get to the Chiefs and Bills, but when's that going to be easy? Those teams are built well, and they're built well to to be successful for many years. The Chargers, the Bengals, the Ravens, these teams are going to be around. They got their quarterback in place. The Browns might be getting better, right, if Deshaun Watson comes back and actually plays at a high level. There are other teams here that, you know, might not be major factors in 2022, should be in the next couple of seasons if, if things go right for those teams. I loved it for Miami. I, I love them taking that aggressive stance and going for it. Well, you consider how much that they paid for Tyreek Hill and how good he's been. And it's easy to look at him and think, well, if he's this good now, I mean, he'll be at his peak forever. But that's just not the way that it works. You don't know how long he's going to be this type of world-beating player. You just – Tyreek Hill, Jalen Waddle, a quarterback who is the perfect fit for what his coach wants to do. And this is just so cool because you see a coach who – knows what the strengths of his player are and is leaning into them so heavily that this offense has been a juggernaut and is just so cool. When you talk about who you've got to get through and you think about the Bengals and what happened last year with the way they played in the Super Bowl and the way that they have started out this season, I don't think it's that unfair to say that they were not that close to the Chiefs and the Bills last year. But that doesn't mean that you couldn't make it through. I mean, you can yeah. easily see the Dolphins being the team that's not actually that close to them this year, but especially if you have a path that, for whatever reason, makes us you only have to go through one of them. And maybe that's not the way it would work out this season. I mean, you can win that one game. They've already beaten the Bills once. 
And then I would love their chances in the Super Bowl, even if, you know, you do have a, a very good team in the Eagles or the Cowboys or the 49ers there. You absolutely have to go for it. And when you have the explosiveness on offense, that's part of it. That's what helps you compete. That's what helped the Bengals come back in the, you know, in the AFC championship game. I mean, you have explosive playmakers. That helps. And Miami does have a type of team that in a one-game setting, you're not going to count them out when they have Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle, and they have now a couple of good effective running backs as well. Um Gesicki, whoever else. But they they obviously have the type of talent that you can have the explosive plays, you can have the variance things go your way in a one-game setting like the Bengals kind of did and what they wrote uh, in their postseason run last year. So, yeah, I mean, just looking through the rest of the AFC, I mean, there's other teams you look into the future. I mean, the Steelers and the Patriots are down right now. They're not, they're not going to be down forever necessarily. The Jets are the team we've talked a lot about, Sean. Once they get a quarterback in place, that team's going to be good in your division. The Bills are already good. Yeah, do you want to go for it when all four teams – in the AFC East are awesome, or do you want to take this window where the Patriots and the Jets aren't quite there yet? Right. I mean, it seems like a no-brainer. And then Jacksonville is another team I was just looking at. You mentioned maybe Lawrence is on his way to being a bust. Maybe he's on his way to being an average quarterback. Not a number one pick necessarily, but not terrible. If Calvin Ridley actually stabilizes that passing game in 2023 and beyond, and they have already kind of added the ancillary pieces, and they have Travis Etienne, that could suddenly be a pretty fun offense. 2022 could be kind of a building year for the Jaguars. They could be good going forward into 2023 and beyond. Obviously, this year has not gone great for them. Lawrence has to play better. But there's a lot of teams that you can look at in the AFC and be like, they might even be the next teams if you're not even worried about you know whether the Bengals bounce back next year or the obvious ones, right? The you know the, What happens with the Browns and Deshaun Watson and some of these other teams. So AFC is going to be good for a long, long time. Love Miami taking their swing in 2022 and it, it, it does and it's going to be tough to get through the bills and the chiefs but it, it does feel very plausible that we could go into the, the postseason feeling like they're the third best team yeah such a fun trade deadline we like a lot of these moves just great to see teams using this to try and address some issues it's fun for fantasy i think a lot of people's value jumps on these trades but then also some of their teammates improve that 17% target share that Claypool had with the Steelers now almost certainly will be spread out among three really exciting players who were there. If Kenny Pickett, once they get through this tough stretch of defenses, starts to play a little bit better, you could have those remaining Steelers weapons take a pretty sizable jump. You've got to have some efficiency with that. But yeah, the trade deadline was the perfect cherry on top of a fantastic week eight Ben, it's so fun to chat with you about it. That'll do us for Stealing Bananas today. I'm Sean Siegel with me, as always, is Ben Gretsch. Make sure you follow him at Yards Per Gretsch. Sign up for Stealing Signals. Sign up for Stealing Lines. Join us over at Rotoviz using the coupon code RVRADIO2022 at checkout for a 10% discount on your one-year subscription. If you want to help the podcast, give us a boost with all those algorithms. You guys have been so cool with leaving comments, leaving reviews subscribe to the feed we're gonna possibly then do some cool things with the tempo over the next month month and a half you'll get all of those episodes if you're a subscriber we appreciate you guys so much we'll talk to you soon